Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Yak Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov. And I'm Nick. And we've finally made it to the land of infectious diseases. These next few episodes are going to dive into diseases which are so high yield that we wanted to give them their own episodes. This one is going to be extra special because we have our housemate and future radiation oncologist Nick with us. And we'll be talking about everything about HIV, from vaccines, prophylactic drugs, and the many opportunistic infections which test writers want us to know. So with that, let's jump into our first case. All righty, folks, let's get to it. First, we have a 30-year-old male who comes in for a regular checkup with his physician. He states that about six months ago, he had several weeks of night sweats, achy joints, diarrhea, and fever, which all started after a rash of red oval lesions all over that lasted about a week. After three weeks, all symptoms resolved, but now he feels tired all the time. Vitals and exam are normal. What's an important part of this patient's history that we still need to help us figure out what's going on? I would like to know more about his social history, whether he had traveled recently, and if he had any sick contacts. We know from the patient's chart that he has never used drugs intravenously, and he is sexually active with multiple partners. He tells you that he has no recent travel or sick contacts, but did have a new sexual partner about two weeks ago before this all started. What are you thinking might be going on? Now I'm strongly suspicious that the patient's symptoms were caused by acute HIV infection, which can present two to four weeks after exposure with mono-like symptoms such as fever and lymphadenopathy, a macular rash, which usually resolves after a week, and GI distress. Other than the rash, these symptoms can last up to a month. So what do we want to do for him? We would want to do an HIV test, especially with our patient's risk factors. While we wait for the test result, what is HIV and what are the traditional risk factors? HIV is human immunodeficiency virus, which is transmitted via blood, semen, or vaginal fluid. Therefore, the main risk factors involve transfer of these fluids. IV drug use, having multiple sexual partners, and receptive anal intercourse are the main ones. Incarceration or homelessness are also risk factors because, unfortunately, these populations are more likely to participate in the behaviors that we just mentioned. That was a really great summary. So the HIV test comes back positive. What test should we send to determine how severe our patient's disease is? With any new diagnosis of HIV, we want to know the viral load and the CD4 count, which tell us how much the virus is replicating and how immunodeficient the patient has become. Exactly. So we get those and they show a CD4 count of 400 and a viral load of 200,000. What are our three main considerations for managing our newly diagnosed HIV patient? Actually, for any HIV patient, there are three main things we focus on for treatment and prevention. One, antiretroviral therapy, two, vaccination, and three, any appropriate prophylactic drugs. Let's break each of these very high yield subjects down. What do we need to know about antiretrovirals for the exam? Honestly, not a lot for step two or the shelf. While step one focused on the many mechanisms of action and side effects of these drugs, at this point, we really just need to know that the main side effect to worry about is nephrotoxicity. You may also need to know that genetic testing is often required before starting medications to know which regimen will be effective. This is particularly necessary if the patient is going to start abacavir because those with a certain genotype, specifically HLA-B5701, are predisposed to a hypersensitivity reaction. Good to know. Now let's get into vaccination for HIV patients. What tests should we get for our patient to see which ones are necessary? We should get antibody titers for pretty much everything. Hepatitis A and B, varicella, measles, mumps, rubella. Those are the main ones to check. We should also look at his vaccination history to see when his last tetanus diphtheria vaccine was administered. 
Once you have these results, what are some special considerations for this population? Most of the recommendations are the same as the general population, with some exceptions. Those using IV drugs and men who have sex with men should receive the Hep A vaccine. Thus, many but not every HIV patient needs it. Any patient without HBV immunity, without varicella antibodies, and born after 1980, or without MMR antibodies, should receive these vaccines. Remember, HBV immunity means the presence of anti-Hep B surface antibody. Meningococcal vaccinations should be given to all HIV-positive patients with boosters every five years. And finally, the pneumococcal vaccination should be given to any newly diagnosed HIV patient, first the PCV-13, then the PPSV-23 nine weeks later and five years after that, as well as at the age of 65. Wow, that's a lot of info. Let's use our patient as an example to process this information. Let's say his titers show a negative Hep A antibody and a positive Hep B surface antibody, negative measles, mumps, and rubella, as well as negative varicella antibodies. His last TDE vaccination was 12 years ago. Which vaccinations are necessary? So due to his negative antibodies and his sex practices, he will need a Hep A vaccine. He doesn't need a Hep B vaccine, but will need an MMR and varicella vaccine due to antibodies. He will need a TD vaccine since it's been over 10 years and a flu vaccine, assuming he hasn't had one this year. When do we need to start considering his CD4 count when it comes to vaccinations? At a CD4 count below 200, live vaccines such as MMR, varicella, or the nasal flu vaccine are all contraindicated. A great transition to prophylaxis, which is all about the CD4 count. What are the two main infections we're trying to prevent and how do we do so? The main two infections are pneumocystis gerevecchiae and Toxoplasma gondii. theoretically when the CD4 count is below 200 and 100, respectively. You also only give toxoplasmosis prophylaxis if the patient is positive for IgG antibodies. The fortunate thing is the prophylactic medication for choice for both PJP and Toxo is TMP-SMX or Bactrim. Alternative therapies for sulfa allergy patients include atovaquone or dapsone, and you would add pyrimethamine to either for toxoprophylaxis. And what are some other testable diseases that usually don't need prophylaxis that they want us to know? Although azithromycin used to be given to prevent MAC, it is no longer recommended. HIV patients also don't need prophylaxis against CMV or candida, though they sometimes like to ask about adding fluconazole or gancyclovir to trick us up. Sometimes you will add itraconazole, but that would be to prevent against histoplasmosis in those with a CD4 count less than 150 in endemic areas. And we'll get back to histo and PCP in our fungal episode. And based on your answers, it seems like we can just send our patient home without prophylaxis since the CD4 count is 400. For now, let's leave this long case behind and talk about some of the opportunistic infections which they love to test on. Great. So for our next case, we have a 42-year-old female with a past medical history of HIV-AIDS and last CD4 count of 30, who's experiencing homelessness, and she's coming in due to two weeks of watery diarrhea, fever, and a new rash. Vitals show a temperature of 39.3. Exam is very revealing, so I'll take it slow. She's diaphoretic and appears malnourished. Diffuse lymphadenopathy is present. Oral exam shows white plaques. Skin exam reveals purple pedunculated lesions on her face and extremities, which bleed easily. Abdominal exam reveals hepatosplenomegaly. So let's break that down, starting with her diarrhea. What are the main causes of diarrhea in HIV AIDS patients that we don't worry about in the general population? The three main causes are the parasite cryptosporidium, cytomegalovirus, 
and Mycobacterium avium complex, abbreviated MAC. And which do you think is most likely the cause of our patients' diarrhea? I would say MAC because it is the most likely to be associated with weight loss, high fever, watery diarrhea, and enlargement of lymphoid organs such as lymph nodes, liver, and spleen. It's only seen in the severely immunocompromised, typically with a CD4 count below 50. While cryptosporidium is also associated with weight loss and watery diarrhea, the volume is more profuse, the fever is milder if present, and it can be seen in patients with CD4 less than 200. And CMV colitis, as we mentioned in our GI episode, generally results in bloody diarrhea that is frequent and small volume in patients with CD4 below 50. A perfect summary of an important differential. How do we diagnose and treat our patient's MAC? You would culture the blood and or lymph nodes, and if, quote, non-tuberculous microbacteria is present, then a macrolide such as azithromycin and a thamputol should be initiated. Now let's talk about our patient's rash. What's the likely cause here? This sounds like the classic description of a bacillary angiomatosis, or BA, caused by the bacteria Bartonella hensley in HIV patients with CD4 less than 100. The typical presentation is with vascular cutaneous lesions, which are usually purple or red, bleed easily in papular, nodular, or peduncular in form. On top of that, the patient will have systemic symptoms such as fever and fatigue, though this patient's high fever is probably the MAC. BA can also involve the liver, bone, and CNS. Yikes. And how are we going to treat it to prevent all those awful complications? Generally, doxycycline or azithromycin will do the trick. Easy peasy. Finally, what about these white plaques that we mentioned in the patient's mouth? That's got to be oral thrush. It's a classic hint on exams for the immunocompromised and is caused by a Canada species. The treatment is generally with nystatin, swish, and swallow, which can also treat or prevent Canada esophagitis. What are a few other bacterial and fungal opportunistic infections in HIV AIDS that we should know about? The main ones to know are tuberculosis, which is actually our entire next episode, and the fungi PCP, cryptococcus, and histoplasmosis. Now that we've treated our patient by starting antiretroviral therapy, azithromycin, ethambutol, and nystatin swish and swallow, I think we're ready for our next case and our last case. Next, we have a 30-year-old male with a past medical history of cellulitis and intravenous drug use who comes in with a month of a new rash and a few days of bloody diarrhea and pain with swallowing. His HIV test is positive and his CD4 count is 40. Vitals show a fever of 38. Exam reveals diffuse, violaceous papules, especially along the inguinal fold, which don't bleed on contact. He also has diffuse lymphadenopathy. Let's break down this patient's presentation. What is the likely cause of this patient's skin issue? This sounds to me like Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a type of endothelial tumor caused by HHV-8, commonly seen in patients who develop AIDS. It typically presents with either flat or papular lesions, which are described as violaceous, red or brown, and are often associated with lymphadenopathy. Unlike bacillary angiomatosis, the lesions are generally not friable, as in they don't bleed easily on contact, and they have a predilection for skin folds. And what do we do for our patient with Kaposi's? The mainstay of treatment for an HIV AIDS patient with Kaposi's is initiating antiretroviral therapy, since restoring their immune system is the best way to help stave off the virus's oncogenic effects. Now that we've dealt with that, What about our patient's low-grade fever, diarrhea, and odynophagia? I'm most worried about CMV colitis and esophagitis, which usually presents in patients with a CD4 count below 50. We already spoke about the diarrhea differential before, and we covered esophagitis in our esophagus episode, but briefly to recap, 
Since he doesn't have oral plaques, the esophagitis isn't likely from candida, and herpes esophagitis would often be associated with mouth sores and or inflammation of the mouth called stomatitis. If we were to get an endoscopy, we would expect linear ulcerations. We treat CMV with gancyclovir. Before we wrap up, what's another very rare virus which can affect severely immunocompromised patients such as ours? I think what you're getting at is the JC virus, which can reactivate and cause progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or a fancy way of saying white matter demyelination, which leads to slowly worsening balance and cognition. Really quick, what are the three main neurological complications of HIV, and how do we differentiate them based on imaging? Well, we just mentioned PML, which will show up as asymmetric non-enhancing lesions on brain MRI. HIV lymphoma usually presents as a solitary enhancing lesion with surrounding edema, and toxoplasmosis presents with multiple ring-enhancing lesions and surrounding edema, as well as fever. The other symptoms tend to have lots of overlap between the three. I can always CD4 count on you for a great answer. And with that, our first ID episode is done. I think the next episode is going to be a great one, so stay tuned. (laughs) 